So uh, we've been in First John for a while, and essentially, I think you could sum up First John um, with the phrase, "How can you know that you know?" And essentially, that's what First John is about. As John is writing to this either church or group of churches, uh, essentially this body of believers, and he's writing to them almost like, as I've used the illustration before, almost like a grandfather writing to his grandchildren, talking about uh, just ways in which uh, they can have wisdom, they can have faith, they can have mostly, though, they can have assurance. Um, he's writing them, uh, writing to them in a way that gives them knowledge. How can they know that they know that they belong to Christ? Um, that's essentially what he's after. Uh, and this was a very timely, very important, we could use the word prescient. Uh, it was a very, um, it was a topic that was so relevant to the people that John was writing to, mainly because, as we've noted and tried to point out, is that John was writing to a group of believers who were being influenced negatively um, by this group of teachers known as the Gnostics. Uh, the Gnostics were this group of teachers who were trying to uh, claim some sort of higher form of revelation, higher form of spiritual insight. And so they were going to people, and uh, especially churches that perhaps Paul or perhaps others had established, or the apostles had established, at least accordingly. Um, they were going to those churches and, and dissuading them from the fact that they had faith. But now they were being told that they needed something else. Some other higher experience, some, some sort of experience of like heavenly nirvana or insight or revelation. And again, what is happening then is that all of these believers, perhaps new in the faith or young in the faith or weak in the faith, they're being influenced by this idea that, oh, I haven't had that. I haven't, haven't, been, able to, uh, haven't been able to experience that. Now you have... A generation of believers that are veering ever so slightly off the word. And that's why John, if you read the Gospel of John, and if you read John here in this, in this letter, he's so adamant about what? You have the assurance that you need in Jesus, the word, become flesh. <laughs> that's why First John 1 and John 1 begin with essentially the same sort of introduction. The word that we had from the beginning, the word which was God, the word that was with God from the very beginning. He's, he's, he's trying to encourage these believers with the knowledge that they have is the knowledge that, that is, is all the knowledge that's required for salvation, true salvation. That's what he's adamant about, that the knowledge that anyone needs for justification for, as he uses the phrase here, for righteousness, is the knowledge that is revealed in the person and work of Jesus, the word of God in the form of man. That's what he's been talking about. He was the, wor- he was the knowledge that they needed. Look at, um, just by way of introduction, getting us back into this little study, look at chapter 2 and look at verse 20. Again, he's writing, talking to them about the knowledge that they can have, this knowledge of assurance, this knowledge of Christ. Notice what he says, 1 John 2.20, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, by the Holy Spirit, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. He's saying, you know it already. 
You've learned from us. You've learned from the apostles. You have been saved. You've been indwelt, as he says, anointed by the Holy One. It's the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you could say. And he says, you have the knowledge already. We don't need to sort of break new ground there, John is saying. They had it already. Again, this is so, you can see John sort of trying to encourage these believers against sort of the Gnostic movement of, you know, you need something else. You need this sort of more particular knowledge. No, you have it in Christ. Christians, he's saying, Christians are Christians because of Christ, not because of anything else. No other word matters. No other work matters. And here he's encouraging this church that now we're, that's what provides our root, our ground. That's what provides our, our sturdiness. It's that knowledge that we are in Christ. We are God's children because of what God's son has done. That phrase, children, appears all over this letter. I should have had it tabulated. I don't have how many times it appears, but it's all over this letter. And it's always indicative of John's sort of affections for these believers. He's writing it. You're a child of God. That's the knowledge you can have. You are a child of God. And he's reinforcing that. Again, since it had been that sort of knowledge, that sort of assurance had been thrown into doubt by these, <laughs> the evil wisdom, you could say, of those Gnostic teachers. And I, I think in many ways... I can relate to John here just a little bit, only because um, maybe you've been in a situation like this before. You don't have to like tell me the story. <laughs> we can maybe we can talk about it later. <laughs> but I think there's very little that makes me more fired up when I hear preachers sort of make Christians doubt their salvation. Have you ever been in a service like that, <laughs> where it's like, man, he's preaching so hard, mate. I don't think I'm saved. <laughs> and now you want to go and throw your stick in the fire, even though you've been a Christian your whole life. Or, you know, you, you know you're a Christian, but because the way he's preaching, it makes you feel like you're not a Christian anymore suddenly. Um, that is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Maybe that's wrong. I don't know. But um, I don't think, maybe, this is just my little two cents. I don't think it's my job to convict you. I don't think it's my job to challenge your faith. That's the Holy Spirit's job. <laughs> That's, that's God's spirit's job, and he's way better at it than me, which is just to say, I don't need to try and make you uncomfortable uh, in the way that I'm presenting God's word. Uh, that's the, the job of God's Holy Spirit. My job is just to be faithful and saying, this is what the word of God says. This is what the word of God says. Here's God's truth for you, and here's how you can know that you know. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4.12. <laughs> And that just means being faithful to the word. I, I don't need to be the one that makes you always doubting your salvation. And I would say that John would be against that too. Because he's coming to these believers and saying, no, don't let that happen. You have the knowledge you need right in front of you. And I've see, even seen First John, and I'm not going to harp on all the preachers, but I've seen First John be used as sort of a litmus test, as like a test for knowing if you're saved or not. And I don't think John is trying to use this letter as a way to get Christians to doubt their salvation. The opposite is true. He's trying to remind them of the assurance that they can have in who Christ is, in the word, he says. He's writing so that they can be sure of how, uh, they can be sure of who they are in the beloved, in Christ. So, anyways... 
that was that's sort of a good way to understand the whole letter. And at the end of chapter two, because the kind of the focus of that of, of chapter two was sort of um, John was sort of leaning into the ways in which the Gnostics were sort of preaching a message that he calls anti-Christian. And in fact, if you remember from several weeks ago, we talked about how that doctrine, that promotion of those truths by the Gnostics, he says, this is just downstream of the Antichrist himself. (laughs) He doesn't mince words. And he's basically saying anyone who follows in their footsteps, they are also part of Antichrist too. (laughs) So he's talking about that. But now here, as chapter 3 begins, he sort of shifts and, and talks about some of the defining marks of what it looks like to be a child of God. How can you, what are some defining marks that make it easy to say that uh, this is what a child of God looks like? Notice verse 28 of chapter number 2 as he sort of gets into this here. He says, uh, 2.28, and now little children. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You see, he's talking about little children, how they can have confidence about what happens when he comes, how they can know that they know that they belong to Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared. Look at verse number 10. By this it is evident. By this you can know. Again, he's he's pressing into that knowledge. Again, interestingly enough, that word see in verse number 1 is the exact same as know. That word know that you find all the way throughout chapter 3, same word as know. Or the same word as C in verse 1. So, how, are, how, are, how, are, how can we know that we know that we are a child of God according to this text? Well, I think there's three things. Three sort of defining marks of the children of God that John sort of identifies here. And the first is this. The exaltation of God's love. The exaltation of God's love. Again, go back to verse number 1. Notice what he says. See or know what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Here John is exalting the Father's love, the Father's love for, yes, the adopted children of God such as John is, such as this church is. And he's, he's sort of exploding into this enthusiastic anthem. See what kind of love we have in the Father. He's inviting even these brothers and sisters that he has in this church to consider this great love for themselves. Stop and see. Stop and consider. Stop and know. Ponder what great love the Father has shown us. That we could be called the children of God. That we could be made as members of God's family. He's inviting them into that. And he's basically saying the children of God are those who exalt the love of God. I'm reminded of my actual favorite hymn. And can it be? Where the, the, the chorus, how does it go? Amazing love. How can it be? And it's not just a question, but it's an exclamation. 
as I think it's Charles Wesley, and he's writing those words, and he's just sort of exclaiming just with wonder, just awestruck wonder of how can it be? Amazing love. And you could sort of insert the same sort of, uh, sort of feeling into these words of John. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be made the children of God. It's a rhetorical exclamation. It's an unanswerable exclamation. Because you will never be able to come to the end of that consideration of that love. It's an invitation then to have your mind and your heart and your soul just captured, captivated. By the love that God has shown to us in his son. The person of God's son, Jesus Christ. And the love that he has shown us. And the fact that because of his death, he has made a way for sinners to become the sons and daughters of God. That's what John is, is calling them to consider, to know, to see. And you see, the point is, is that this is not a reality that's left in limbo. It's not a reality that's sort of just left hanging in the balance where we have to wonder if it's true or not, wonder if it's real or not, wonder how certain it is. This is not an abstract idea that doesn't have any sort of real substance to it. Again, if you think about the Gnostic way of explaining salvation, that's it. It's just amorphous. It has no substance. It's just this experience. Here, here's some truth, but here's something else that you have to have as well. And there's nothing then to sink your teeth into. There's nothing to plant your feet on. And John is saying, no. No, your identity, the fact that you are a child of God, is not something abstract, it's something concrete. And what's more concrete than the person of Jesus? He has blood and sinew and bones and flesh. It's something that's real. It's something that's powerful. And John is saying, we have confidence that we are God's children because of that. Because God has manifested his love for us in the incarnate person of his son. And that's the amazing thing. Did you catch how awesome he... Listen to his words again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I love this phrase. Beloved, we are God's children now. (laughs) We are God's children now. Right where we sit. We have that belief in in the love of the Father. And he says, and so we are. We are God's children. And he goes even further. Beloved, we are God's children now. It's not something that we look to beyond beyond us down the road. And eventually I'll get there. Eventually I'll do enough things. Eventually I will work my way into being in the Father's love. Being a part of God's family. No. John is saying, you are a child of God right where you stand. Or right where you sit. (laughs) You are a child of God, a daughter of God, a son of God, right where you are. You are a part of his family now, heirs with him, fellow heirs with Christ. We are talking about this on Wednesday. Hold your finger there and go to Romans chapter 8. Because this, I think, expresses, I think, the idea that John is getting at in just a beautiful way. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 15. Paul is talking, he's talking about how we were heirs with Christ. And notice what he says. 
uh, well, let's look at verse 14. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. You are adopted into the family of God as sons, or you can insert as daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Oh, what wonderful promises he elaborates on here. You are children of God, but even he's like, that's not even half of it. You are heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Christ. All of the inheritances that, that belong to Christ are yours as well by way of faith. You are a co-heir with Christ because he has become your older brother because you've been adopted into the family of God. Wow. That's what it means to be a part of the family of God. And you can almost sense that John is referencing sort of the same things. That is true right now. We are children of God right now. And we get to cry, Abba, Father. See, I, we talked about this on Wednesday, didn't we? You know, Abba, Father, some people like to downplay the idea that Abba, you know, it, and, you know some people interpret it that, you know, Abba means Daddy. And so you, could, you have that sort of affection with God. And some people get all up in arms and they're like, you shouldn't call God Daddy, blah, blah, blah. Because people, I think, are too stuck up. And I'm just saying, you can call God Daddy. You know why? Because that's how close you are to him. And that's how close he is to you. And yes, maybe we shouldn't always just praying Daddy God and all sorts of things. But you, that's how close he is. He's not talking about liturgy and he's not talking about prayer. You know what Paul's talking about? That's how close God is to you. And that's how close you are to God that you can call him Dad. And that's what he's saying. And that's the reality that we have. With God, by faith, the exaltation of the love of God, that we can call him Father, that we can call him Dad. (laughs) One writer puts it this way, Jesus invites us to become like a little child, to crawl into Abba's arms and let him love on us. (laughs) I think that's a great image. And that's what we're invited to do as God's children. Words, I think, that should lift us Lift every heart of every Christian that the love of the Father has made us God's children now. The exaltation of God's love. Number two, the exaltation of God's love. Number two, the expectation of God's glory. Back in 1 John chapter 3, the expectation of God's glory. Because along with this exaltation is this expectation. Because we know, um, even though that we, uh, amazing fact and It's a fact that we should glory in. We should find so much assurance in that we are God's children now. I think what we also has us wrestling is what? Is that we know we're not perfect. (laughs) Because just because we believe by faith that we are God's children, that doesn't make us perfect. And you're likely well aware of that fact. You know that. And John's point, though, isn't to reassure his friends of, uh, well, his, his point is to reassure his friends that their status as the children of God is not dependent upon their perfection or their purification. He's going to get to that in just a second. 
Remember, as has been his point, Christians are Christians because of Christ, not because of them. And along with that knowledge, that knowledge that I am a Christian because of Christ, also comes this hope, this blessed expectation that we will one day be made like him. And that's, that's how you can know that, how you can know you're a child of God is that you're longing for that day when you will be made like him. As he says again, verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. It's not yet been fully realized. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are not as we should be, nor are we what we will be. But even still, we know and trust that there's a day coming when we shall be like him. That's what, this, what fills God's children with so much hope, is the fact that this one day we will be glorified, as, he, as, as Paul wrote about in Romans 8, that provided we suffer with him, but we will also be glorified with him. That's our abiding hope. That's our abiding assurance. And our bodies, though they be racked with sores and sorrows and cares and sufferings and all kinds of weights, one day we will be pure as he is pure. See, we stand right now as, as sinners who've been washed white as snow. But our present reality is what? Is that we're still struggling with this old flesh, this old nature that is so inclined to sin. One day, we won't put off our flesh, what happens? We will get <laughs> purified bodies. You see, don't fall into the trap that we have to put off the flesh. That's the old trap of like the Greeks and all of their, their so-called knowledge that somehow matter, material, our flesh is somehow inherently bad. No, it's not. It's just broken because of the fall. This earth is not something that we should be ashamed of, nor are our bodies something that we need to cast off. Again, that plays into the Gnostic way of thinking. That somehow material things are somehow evil and you need to ascend to the higher... No. Our hope is what? Is that this flesh is going to be put back into the way it should have been from the very beginning. Our hope is the fact that these bodies will be renewed and redeemed. Don't ask me what that looks like. Whether, you know, everyone gets a six-pack, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like in heaven, don't ask me. But I just know that that's our hope, that's our, that's our promise in God, that we will have glorified bodies. We're not just going to be spirits floating around in, in nothingness. We will have glorified bodies that have been made new. And that's our expectation. We shall be made like him. Jesus didn't cast off his body when he went to heaven. He's not just some spirit floating up in nothingness. He still has his flesh. Did you know that? Jesus is still flesh and blood in heaven for you. Wow. And you will be too. You will be flesh and blood with him. Made new, made whole, made pure. We will be glorified Him, like him and glory. Oh, let me read a couple of verses. You can write these down. You don't have to go to all of them. Colossians chapter 3. Paul talks about this same, this same reality. Colossians 3, 4, he says this, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's our expectation. And as John was writing about it, as it I love how he puts it. Uh, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. 
We don't fully know exactly what that means and what that looks like, but we know that it will mean that we will be made like him. That's what awaits us. Philippians 3, verse 20, a great passage of Paul's. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's what we look for. That's our expectation. It's the expectation of God's glory that we will be made to share in. Wow. As children of God, we are invited to share in the glory of God that glorifies these bodies. Meanwhile, what we're living in sort of the in-between. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning, that part of living the life of faith is living in this in-between space between the right now and the, and the not yet. Right now, we are God's children. We are God's children now. That is a fact. You can believe it by faith, but not yet fully, because one day we will be made like him. So we are right now God's children, but not yet fully what it means to be God's children. And part of the Christian life is living in that tension. That's why Paul calls his beloved brothers and sisters to walk by faith. Actually, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see this passage because that's where that verse comes out, but it actually plays right into what we're talking about. 2 Corinthians 5, and look at verse 1. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. Paul, uh, contemporary of John, and he's writing, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens for in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling of course here paul is using this imagery of a tent in a home a permanent home as sort of a metaphor for our bodies this tent that we have here is sort of an allusion to the fact that we have bodies that are that are weak that are frail he, he mentions it earlier in chapter 4. Uh, our, these bodies here on earth that are filled with sin are just more like jars of clay. And here he's, he's saying that someday, someday we are going to have an eternal home, a glorified body, as he says, and put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 3, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Here he's summarizing the whole thing. We know that this will be true of us one day, that these tents will be put off and we will put on heavenly dwellings, glorified bodies. And though we wish for that, that we hope for that, that we have an expectation of that, we right now, where we are, we are filled, as he says, with all courage. Because we have what? The Spirit as the guarantee. Again, it leans back into what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 3. It's the assurance. How can you know that you know you have this expectation of God's glory that will be revealed when your body is glorified like His? How can you know... You're a child of God. You walk by faith with this expectation of glory. 
It's the good news that, fill, that fills us with that, that blessed hope. The expectation of God's glory. So the exaltation of God's love, the expectation of God's glory, and lastly, number three, the emancipation of God's people. The emancipation of God's people. So go back to 1 John 3 and look at verse number 4. Notice what he says from verse 4 down through verse 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, the emancipation of God's people. Part of the right now reality that we have as God's sons and daughters is, is the very fact, the, the blessed facts of the gospel that we have been freed from the law of sin and death. That is what's declared to us in Christ. When the word of the gospel goes forth, it's the word that by faith you are declared freed from sin and death and alive unto righteousness. Paul talks, about, Paul talks about it in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 2, where he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We believe that right now. As a child of God, you have been emancipated, liberated, freed from your slavery to sin. Paul talks about it in Romans 6, by the way. But it brings me back to uh, that hymn, And Can It Be? In that wonderful verse where he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Here the, the, the writer, Wesley is using this sort of imagery, almost you can imagine the imagery of perhaps Peter, when he's in the, in the prison. <laughs> he's in prison, and then the angel comes in, but he's almost using it in a spiritual metaphor, in the same way that as this dawn of light, that's this realization of repentance and faith, and when that happens, what also happens? The chains fall off. They fall to the ground, and they make this clanging sound. Why? Because you are freed. And just as Peter walked out of the cell, you walk out of death because you've been raised to life by the power of God. That's the gospel. And here, Paul, John is saying the same thing, that we who belong to Christ are those who have been unshackled from the unrighteousness that is part of us. And we've had that happen to us because of Christ. Did you notice twice he makes reference to this in verses 5 and verse 8. Notice what he says in verse 5. You know, you want a reason why Christ came to you? A Christmas message is right here. Why did Christ appear in the flesh? He says, in order to take away sins. 
Or, verse number 8, why did Christ appear in the flesh? Verse number 8, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Christ has come. The whole reason why Jesus has appeared in the flesh was to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. The devil's works are manifest in this little passage, I think. By that word that John keeps repeating, if you read this little section from verse 1 down through verse 10, he uses the word sinning seven times. Seven times actually in a mere seven verses. And every time it appears, it's meant to sort of convey the, the will and, and the, it's, it's anything that's contrary to the will and the wisdom of God. Or as he says in verse 4, it's lawlessness, it's utter, it's utter anarchy, it's chaos, it's man taking the place of God. It's man inserting himself into the divine scheme of things where he is the center and circumference of all things. And he says, by nature, we are ensnared by this. It is our nature to be inclined to sin. We come into this world, we are born into this world, dead in trespasses and sins. (laughs) Ephesians 2, and then we have that wonderful phrase, but God. But then God appeared in the flesh and utterly destroyed all of the devil's works. The devil's program of sin by which he would deceive you and deceive your neighbors and deceive your friends. God put that to death. And we who believe in Christ Jesus have been made to share in that. We've been emancipated from sin, which is what makes it worse than when we keep on sinning. You know, notice what he says in verse number 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Notice verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, I want you to be clear on what John is not saying because John is not sort of making the case for some sort of idea of perfectionism. He's not talking about the idea that we who've been brought into the family of God can somehow in and of ourselves um, achieve perfection. He's not saying that. He's not saying that Those who claim to be God's children don't sin. We probably know that to be not true. (laughs) What John is saying is that there is an is that there's an evidence in there's a distinguishing characteristic in God's children that breaks the habit of sinning. Notice he makes that that phrase appear. Notice verse four again. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Notice verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning. Verse 9, again, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And he says the same thing in verse number 10. And on he goes. So here he's sort of teasing out this difference between those who sin and those who make a practice of sinning. It means a habitual exercise, a habitual working of yourself and your mind and your body. Everything that you are, you are making a point. You're setting out to do the things that are contrary to the will of God. And when you sin, as a child of God, you are... He's, he's sort of drawing this out. So, let me back up. He, he, he's drawing out that difference. Between those who sin and those who make a practice of sinning. So as a child of God, as one who is part of the family of God by faith, when you 
sin, you are free to fall on your Abba in repentance. And that's what it means when it talks about the struggle. It's the war that we have with ourselves. Romans 7. That we keep doing the things that we don't want to do and we don't do the things that we know we should be doing. It's war. It's the war that is common to the Christian faith. But when you keep on sinning, when you're making a practice out of your life to keep on doing the things that are contrary to the will of God and you're not even struggling... You're not even having a war. What is happening? You're showcasing that your allegiances may lie elsewhere. Notice what he says in verse number 9 again. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep sinning because he's been born of God. When you keep on sinning, keep on making a practice of sinning, what is he saying? You're actually showing that the nature that you think that you have and know about may not actually be in you. Because the nature of God that is born in God's children as they come to be a part of God's family by faith actually leads to a struggle. If you're struggling, if you're fighting sin, that's a good thing. That's a good sign. It's not something to be ashamed of. Man, I'm really battling. I'm going through this season. I'm struggling. Good. That means the Spirit is working on you. That means the Spirit is not letting you fall back into what you would probably rather be doing. It's easy just to coast. It's easy not to have a struggle. If you're struggling, that means there's faith being worked in you. And here John is saying to them, if you're making a practice out of sinning, it's probably because the war, you've already let it go. You've laid down your sword, and you don't even have a skin in the game. You don't even have any more fight. And if you don't have any more fight against the very works that, that God has appeared in the flesh to destroy, you want to talk about offensive. You see, the whole, I think the whole point of this little passage is that if Christ has come to do something about sin, which he has, then the one who keeps on sinning is spitting on what Christ has done. John is not arguing for perfectionism. He's arguing for the fact that if you're struggling, good. And if you're not struggling, you should question something. Those who belong to Christ are those who have been born of God. We are made new. We are new creations. Paul again, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself. As a part of being emancipated from sin, we are given a new nature, a nature that struggles with the sin that still remains, the residue of the old nature. And the point is, is that we evidence the new nature as children of God because the seed abides in us. Did you notice that in verse 9 again? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, God's word, abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You won't keep making a practice out of it because God's word is effective. God's word is powerful and it will lead you into that struggle. (laughs) The word of God lives inside of us by faith, by the spirit of God. And the effect of all of this indwelling is to bring forth what? The newness of life that is found in the word of God. That's what happens by faith. By faith, 
the love of God. We exalt that love because it has, yes, given us this new expectation and has given us this emancipation from the sin that so easily besets us. And now, now we can look forward to that blessed life with God's Spirit as we too are conformed to the image of His Son. That's the life that's made manifest in us. It's the life of Christ that is given to us and planted in us by Christ's Spirit that, yes, bears itself out as the Spirit works in us. This is where the fruits of the Spirit come into the play. This is where you could, we could talk about Galatians. This is how the life of faith works. But actually, I want to end with this passage. Go with me to Romans chapter 6. And I know I've been referencing Paul, but... He just says a lot of things that are really good. And here in Romans 6, I think he summarizes what we're talking about in such a profound way. Because he's talking about the gospel, but he's also talking about newness of life and the, and the emancipation that we have from sin. In this wonderful passage, I'm going to read a lengthy section, but notice what he says in verse 4. This is the gospel. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, emancipated. We are emancipated from the old life. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he had died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. If you want a, a, a portrait of the Christian life, it's this right here. You've been freed, freed from that law that made you continually to be instruments of sin. And now you've been emancipated by the love of God that has come down for you. And now, yes, you have that blessing, the expectation, well, you'll be made like him. But even right now, where you stand, where you sit, you are a child of God. And you have been given the new nature that allows you by faith to be used as instruments of righteousness. What a blessed hope. What a blessed certainty we have. We are God's children now. May we have the faith to live like it. May we have the faith and the certainty and the assurance to live, to live like who we are, the sons and the daughters of God. Let us pray.